And as you take your seats, please open in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, it is the last chapter. For a few months now, we've been looking at this letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy in the city of Ephesus. After the Apostle Paul, Timothy is the first pastor here. And what one Timothy does is explains to us how to build the church of Christ. Now, we're not talking about the building itself. Uh, the church is made up of the people of Christ, correct? How to build up the people of Christ for the glory of Christ, and of course, for the sake of the people of Christ. And as I said, we're looking this morning at verses 1 and 2. We're going to apply this to our lives at work. Many of you work outside of the home. But those of you whose job is the home, well, you work. And those of you who are in school, well, you do a lot of work. Sometimes, instead of getting paid, you have to pay them. But it's work. <laughs> However, you'll notice here that the text immediately is really not about going to work. The text is primarily about slavery. And we're going to talk about that as well. We're going to talk about uh, what slavery was and, and, and how it compares to the slavery we know of today. And I have three points for you this morning, of which the first one is this. The gospel is to be re proclaimed relationally. The gospel needs to be proclaimed in a relational way. Let me read those two verses for you. Just two verses, chapter 6, 1 Timothy, and it reads this way from the ESV. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit of their good service are believers and beloved. Our Lord and Savior, we do pray that you would give to us understanding of your word and help us, Lord, not only to comprehend, but to know how to apply these truths in our daily lives outside these walls. May you be proclaimed there too. Amen. As I said, the first point is that the gospel needs to be proclaimed relationally. You know, there are different ways we can proclaim the gospel. Um, we can proclaim the gospel in a very propositional way. If we were to propositionally proclaim the gospel, we would simply take a series of truths, things that people need to believe. I'm very good at that. I could give you a long list of things we need to believe. They come right out of the scriptures. Objective imperatives. I could preach them. We could preach them. You could declare them at work or at home, wherever it may be. You could do so very boldly. And often it comes off rather coldly, doesn't it? Now, propositions are essential, no question about it. There are things that we need to believe. As people who profess Christ, as people who follow Christ, the bottom line is this. There are essential beliefs that we need to hold on to. We need to hold them dear to our hearts. It needs to be our practice day in and day out. But the reality is that as people come to our church building routinely, though these propositions are true and though they are essential for the Christian faith. I think that gone are the days in which people simply come to church 
without any real interest in actually believing. There used to be a time on Sunday, no matter who you were, you go to church. That still happens down south. We are not down south. We're not in a frigid, spiritually frigid New England either. We're somewhere in between. But people don't come to church because they simply say, well, it's Sunday, I'm going to church. No, generally speaking, people who come, you, on Sunday morning, it's either because you believe or because you want to believe. And that's why you're here. I'm not so sure that propositional proclamation is the best way to declare God's word today. Some people proclaim the word of God in an ironic way. Ironically, uh, what I mean, and, and hopefully you'll remember the term, is that you proclaim the word of God in a pacifying way, in a way that will avoid arguments. Melding two ideas, melding two opposing ideas together so as to compromise. And unfortunately for those who do that, the result is not gospel proclamation. It's not even gospel compromise. It's just compromise. And there are numerous mainline churches that do that. Um, they're dying out. And you know why they're dying out? Because they proclaim the gospel ironically. They try to compromise everything. And who wants constant compromise? Especially when it's truth. You can't compromise truth. But the mainline churches have mastered the ability to do that, but unfortunately they cannot master the results, and so they're all but gone these days. And it's just amazing, you go through certain neighborhoods and you have these beautiful, almost cathedral-like buildings that once, at one point in American history, filled up with people who wanted to hear the gospel, but today they're empty. They're being sold and turned into B&Bs or discotheques or dance halls, for those of you who don't remember disco. <laughs> what do you do with these huge buildings if it's not a church? Well, that's what's happening because of the way they were proclaiming the gospel. We could also proclaim the gospel in a polemic way. Uh, polemics is the art of argumentation and defense. It's aggressive. And, and in polemics, you, you, you attempt to dismantle the other person's arguments uh, in, in your effort to defend the gospel. And certainly there's a time and place for that, right? Uh, but I don't think you're going to win too many hearts that way. You may very well win the argument. You may win the debate. But you don't win the heart. You win the mind, but not the heart. And as gospel proclaimers, we want the heart, not just the mind. What we need to do, when we proclaim the gospel, and I trust that you are in the business of proclaiming the gospel, that you are sharing your truth, God's truth, with others, wherever it may be. You have to share it relationally. Propositions with convictional kindness, that's relational. Convictional kindness. Be convicted. Don't apologize for your convictions, but be kind about it. Don't be mean and angry. Share your propositions, your truths from the scriptures. It has to be from the scriptures. Share them with conviction, but with kindness. In other words, relationally. Don't just give them a series of truths. Don't just simply say, well, see, my truth is superior than your beliefs. 
but rather with a very charitable, kind spirit from your heart proclaim the gospel in a relational way. In a relational way. You'll, you'll notice that's the case here in verses 1 and 2. I'll just point out the second half of verse 1. It says, so that the name of God and the teachings may not be reviled. That's why you needed to do it relationally. We'll take a look at that a little more so in a few minutes. The gospel really does need to be proclaimed. But what happens in our culture today is that the gospel is increasingly being more and more suppressed. It's not that we don't have a lot of gospel-believing people. It's that opportunities for proclaiming the gospel are being squelched. Doors are not necessarily open and welcome to hear your gospel, the gospel from the scriptures. And it's becoming harder and harder to find a way by which we would speak the gospel. One of the most unassuming ways in which the gospel is being suppressed is through our present self-care trend. We're living in an era where self-care is indeed a phenomenon. That's my second point this morning. And listen, there's no question that self-care is important. You do need to take care of yourself. Now, self-care means different things to different people. For some people, self-care means that I'm going to eat right, I'm going to exercise, and I'm going to get to bed on time. That's self-care. For other people, it means good relationships. Good relationships. Self-care. I'm going to get rid of all those deadbeat friends on Facebook who just inspire me to be my worst self or to be jealous I'm going to set aside those relationships that don't help me. I'm not advising that. I'm just telling you what people do. That's their idea of, of self-care. Um, self-care has really turned into being more personal time, more me time. Right? Me time is care time. And, and therefore, we have the advent of the, uh, of the man cave and the she shack. These things never existed before. They do today. Why? Because me time is my time. Self-care. Some people say, you know, self-care for me is just more time to ponder and reflect. I love to go on retreats. I love to go for a hike. I like, like to just be in nature. Find ways in which I can find solitude and there come back to the center and take care of myself. For others... Self-care means ergonomic furniture and a low-stress job. That's all I need, and I'll be good, I'll be happy. Of course, there's no such thing, really, of self-care unless you are, you are including the spiritual aspect, the care of your soul. In fact, if you're not caring for your soul, it doesn't matter how ergonomic your furniture is, you lose. You need care for your spiritual self. Self-care does really actually begin there and ends there. However, please take note of this. When self-care is not defined by biblical principles, then self-care becomes self-destructive. Slowly but inevitably. Your self-care will become destructive if your self-care is not based on biblical principles. 
One of those, one of those needed principles, one of those needed biblical principles in self-care is through mutual relationships. Through relationships. Are you surprised? Relationships. Let me read to you what Joe Keller wrote in an article on Gospel Coalition. He writes this. The gospel's beauty shines when we no longer live for ourselves. Did you get that? The beauty of the gospel shines when? When we learn not to live for ourselves any longer, but rather lovingly care for others out of a transformed heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Out of a transformed heart. After all, spiritual growth begins in the heart, he writes, but it manifests itself through intentional expressions of care for others. And he goes right to the scriptures, Colossians chapter 3, on to chapter 4. That true self-care begins when I am mutually interested in relating with other people. And the gospel then begins to be manifest that other people can see the gospel as they relate to me when I'm relating the gospel to them from the heart. Our churches, he writes, should prioritize a healthy development of the self, but do so cautiously, lest we neglect the beauty and belonging that come when a local church practices New Testament one another commands. We can't get away from the need of the church in terms of our spiritual well-being. I know nowadays it's very easy to stay home and watch church. You're really not in church, guys. <laughs> we would welcome you to be. The doors are open to you, and it would be for your good. I know some people cannot be. That's understandable. And thus the cameras. But for your own good, you grow spiritually, you grow as a person when you have opportunities to relate to others. And not only that, but others can benefit from you through that relationship. Now, you know what the problem with the church is? People. <laughs> Sometimes we don't want to relate to people. Because people are people. Some people are hard to relate to. I understand. However, it is the, these people in particular that we need to learn to relate for their good and for our good, and especially for the glory of God. And what we discover in the midst of God's people is that we are so different, but we carry this one commonality, Jesus Christ which surpasses all our differences. And boy, are we different. I could say this. Uh, as a pastor for over 30 years now, this is the most eclectic church I've ever been in, <laughs> in terms of personalities, in terms of people who have different ways of thinking, different goals in life, all sound, all good, but very different, going in different directions, not bad, good, but eclectic. And we look so much alike, don't we? <laughs> We're not. 
which makes relating that much more difficult, which makes effort that much more essential. Uh, let me just stick with this man's, with Keller's article. He makes three points, which I want to quickly paraphrase for you. And here's the first one. He says that per personal growth needs relationships. Self-care often generates a sense of self-protection. And whenever you begin to protect yourself, you isolate yourself. Whereas spiritual growth happens to the individual within a community. And the community of believers is essential in properly, properly refining your spiritual growth. Second, growth does not need professionalized friendships. It doesn't. Nobody wants to be a project. Nobody wants to be a project. I remember one time somebody befriended my wife, and what we didn't know is that she was a project for a thesis this woman was writing. They came over our house, we went to their house, and it was all very friendly people, very friendly people. But when I discovered that my wife was a project, it did not sit well with me. It would have been better if they had just disclosed it from the get-go. It wasn't a true friendship. Nobody wants to be a project. We don't want professionalized friendships. And my friends, neither should self-care be the main goal of a real friendship. I'm going to befriend you because it'll be good for me. No, no, that's not real friendship. Rather, true friendship, true love, seeks to be a friend for the sake of the other person first. A willingness then even to sacrifice for that person I call my friend. A willingness to be in a relationship that will cost you something. I thought friendships were supposed to be easy, help me get through the day. No, friendships, true friendships, will cost you time and energy, maybe even money. That's true friendship. And we need that sort of relationship in our lives. And I'll say the last point that he writes is that growth needs to be outward. It needs to have an outward focus. We can become so focused on relationships within our own community here that we need neglect to look outside of our walls. The spiritual health of the individual Christian will be enhanced when he, when she looks to share the gospel outside of our walls. In fact, he writes, faithful evangelism leads to joy. Faithful evangelism will lead to your joy. Well, let's take a look at the text. And some of you are saying, wow, that took a while. Yes, it did. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The gospel at work. Let's take a look there. The gospel at work, at work. Okay. Again, the context is slavery. And I do not want to equate your job as slavery, but at times the daily grind can become rather difficult, can feel enslaving. What you'll see in a few moments is that in the ancient world, slavery was rather different than what we are familiar with. There are significant similarities, but significant differences as well in the slavery that we know. Here the Apostle Paul addresses those people who are in the church, those Christians, those believers, who are under the yoke of slavery. They are bond servants. They're enslaved. 
Now, the Bible does not advocate for slavery. Nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible say slavery is good. Keep it up. But maybe you've noticed that neither does the Bible condemn slavery. Have you noticed that? Nowhere in the scriptures does it say, do not, do not enslave a person. And that has made many people scratch their heads and say, why? Why? There is one verse that I know of, and we looked at it some months ago in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 10, and there it does speak about the wrongness of enslaving others, of becoming an enslaver. An enslaver was one who would capture another person and sell uh, that person. That's the enslaver. And it's there it talks about how wrong that is. But it doesn't say that slavery in itself is wrong. Why all the biblical silence? Why is the Bible so silent on the topic? There's so much talk about slavery today, isn't there? And rightly so. But why the silence in the scriptures? Well, there were various ways in the ancient world in which somebody would become a slave. Of course, you could be captured by an enslaver. Somebody would capture you and then ship you and sell you and so on. And the Bible uh, does not in any way condone that. Uh, likewise, children of these slaves would also be enslaved. And that's terrible. That you would be born a slave, born captured, born as a possession of a master. And that was in the ancient world as well. And we're familiar with that sort of slavery. But you could also, in the ancient world, very easily sell yourself into slavery. And just say, you know what? My life is pretty hard right now. My life would be easier and better if I was a slave. Which does give you an idea of what slavery back then was. It was not the slavery that was familiar to us here in the Americas. Life was actually better for many slaves. Uh, sometimes we refer to these slaves as indentured servants. Not too long ago, uh, a friend of mine traced his roots back to Sussex County, New Jersey. Now, he lived all the way out in Maryland, and he said, do you know where this restaurant is? And I said, I sure do. And he said, can you make arrangements for us to go there? And so we, we went, and this man... Um, who settled here in Sussex was a British, white British man. My friend was a tall black man. And so we went to the restaurant, four of us. It was a tall black guy, a short black guy, a Filipino, and a Latino. <laughs> the founder was a British white man. And so we walked in, and, and, and the host said, is it your ancestor? And, no. and we, she went up the line and said, who in the world was, you know, where, where, where did the lineage connect here, and it ends up it was an indentured servant um, from my friend's family, and they ended up here from the name Madison, and there's a Madison Road in Branchville, right? There was also those who were enslaved because of war. So instead of being POWs, they were SOWs, slaves of war. You were captured, and now this is your destiny. You're a prisoner or a slave of war. And then there was debtor slavery as well. In other words, you cannot pay your bills, and so you would work off your uh, debt by being enslaved. 
it would be the equivalent of staying behind at the diner and doing the dishes because you can't pay your bill. They would do it for years. So there's various forms of slavery. It is said that 50% or so of the workforce in Rome were slaves. Rome, the Roman Empire was built on the back of slaves. And the truth is, is that slaves often lived a better life than the everyday common laborer. Hard for us to understand. Their lives are often better than the day they wage guy. Well, according to one commentary, the Old Testament provides protection for Jewish slaves. And this commentator makes a list for us that I want to share with you. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish slave, the Jewish slave was to serve up to six years max. Six years. That's doable, isn't it? I mean, who wants it? But it's doable. An abused slave was to be set free, according to the scriptures. The slave also had the right to religious freedom, and his civic rights were also protected. And if a foreign slave escaped and came into the land of Israel, that slave was to be protected. And slaves were allowed to own slaves. <laughs> That's surprising. They could own their slaves themselves. In Israel, slaves were the civil service workers. And you always knew who they were because there would be one guy digging a ditch and then three of them leaning on a shovel. You knew who they were. <laughs> Tough crap. <laughs> In the New Testament era, the Jewish slaves were to be treated as equals with the eldest son in the house. A slave, yes, but he was to be treated as an equal with the eldest son, and the eldest son had many privileges in the house. Now, Gentile slaves, their, their rights were less, significantly less, but for the Jewish slaves, life was not as difficult as we would imagine. Of course, today, the most prevalent form of slavery is the most heinous form of slavery, you know, that's in the sex trade, um, it's said that more people are enslaved today to the sex trade than all of slavery combined in the years past. That's amazing. And yet all the talk against slavery, all the talk and all the talk, it's all talk. More and more people, more and more children, more and more young girls being enslaved. And America is leading those numbers. It's hard to believe. People shackled in this modern day and age. The Bible does not denounce slavery outright because the scriptures are not seeking to, um, to make social changes per se. Rather, the scriptures are looking to cause spiritual change. And so the Bible doesn't speak outright against slavery because the emphasis is not on social change. Rather, the emphasis is on spiritual transformation, spiritual reforming. Likewise, the Bible doesn't mention the word abortion, although there are principles against abortion throughout. But not once does it speak about abortion per se. 
Why? Because the Bible's not looking to create social reform. The Bible's looking to create a spiritual change in you. And as he works, the Holy Spirit works in you and then works in us corporately. Change comes about not through political methods, but through the heart of every person who turns to Christ. That's where the Bible's at. In fact, unfortunately, so many people are looking to produce social reform through a social biblical agenda. And the result is is that we're losing the gospel. We begin to lose the gospel message when the emphasis is social reform instead of spiritual reform. That's what's happening in much of evangelical America today. The gospel message is being lost because we're equating Christian America with the church. America is not the church. One day the church will be here on this earth, only the church. But that's not today. And and we find ourselves suppressing the gospel when we make the political agenda the gospel agenda. I'm all for righteous laws. I'm all for the right person in office. I'm all for laws that will advocate for the things of Christ. In fact, that's why we're doing this Bible study with elected officials every other week. Because we want to influence them with the gospel of Christ because we know that they need Christ and that their laws will impact us. So we want God-like laws for the nation, for the state. But my friends, don't confuse the matter. We're not looking simply for social reform. We're looking for a spiritual change. And when social reform is the goal, we suppress the gospel. Unfortunately, these ultra, ultra Christian nationalists are doing just that. The gospel is being lost. And people are confusing the political conservative nation with the gospel church. That should not be. By the way, if the Bible had outright forbidden slavery in that day and age, there would be massive unemployment. That doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen. I'm just telling you what would happen. And you know something? God would say, that's okay. But you see, that wasn't the plan of God's purpose in the gospel. The gospel was to transform hearts, not the political environment, not the social environment. And let me say this too. It was biblical principles that influenced the reform of abandoning, of abolishing slavery. What caused America and Great Britain and South America to abolish slavery? Biblical principles. Principles taken directly from the scriptures applied to government and law. Well, let's take a look at these two verses once again so that we can glean from them how we can apply today what we see here. Notice that there are two particular applications in these two verses. We are to apply the scriptures relationally. Remember that's where we started? 
We are to apply or proclaim the scriptures in a relational way. And in verse 1, you see there, the Christian slave whose master is not a believer. For our purposes, let's see it this way. The Christian employee whose boss is not a Christian. Okay? Whose master is not a Christian. That Look at verse 1. You see there that you should regard... That's most of us, by the way, right? Most of us work for non-believers. I don't, but you probably do. <laughs> you should regard your master, your boss, your employer, verse 1, with all honor. Give to him your dutiful service. Give to her what you're being paid for and honor your boss. Now, this is a very objective honor. Um, it, it, it has the, the idea that um, your boss has, your master has absolute authority, and therefore that person should be honored, period. It's saying that you must have a, a sense, an attitude of respect. It is not saying that you should have a feeling of honor for this individual, that your chest should swell up with pride for your master and that you have a sense of one day I'm going to be just like you. No. It is simply saying that that person is your master, that person is your boss, and you should honor that person with your dutiful, honorable service. Respect is due because of the person's position over you. That's verse 1. And then verse 1 also tells us why. Look there at the second half of verse 1. Here's the reason why. So that the name of God and the teachings, the teachings of God, will not be reviled. You see that? Why should you give honor to your non-believing boss? So that the teachings of God and God himself would not be reviled. So that the teachings of the scriptures and the teacher, the, the author of the scriptures, would not be berated or scorned or mocked or disparaged. You see, it needs to be conveyed relationally. What you do, how you live the gospel, at work, whether it's at school or at the factory, or in the office, or at home, how you convey the gospel is going to impact how other people see God. Notice here that the reason has very little to do with the person in charge, but it has everything to do with the people watching and looking to understand your God. Let me read to you from 1 Peter 2, beginning of verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. This is a gracious thing when you consider God. Serve with fidelity. Even though you may not agree with a person's style of life or with a person's ethics, serve with fidelity lest you push onlookers away from God. Serve well. Otherwise, onlookers are going to question God. They're going to question the teachings of the Bible. They're going to say, huh, 
Does God really transform people? Because I don't see it in you. Does the gospel advocate for laziness or insurrection or gossip or hostility or insubordination? Is that the gospel you're trying to compel me to believe? I'm sorry, not me. It was Gandhi who said, I would consider Christianity if it were not for Christians. Christians who live contrary to God's standards bring mockery to God, mockery to his word, and mockery to his church. So my friends, at work, wherever that may be for you, make sure that you're living as an example of Christ to them because they are watching and they are wondering, what are you telling them? Look at verse 2. The Christian slave whose master is a believer. The Christian employee whose boss is a Christian man. He might, she might even go to church with you. Well, every Christian, of course, has the right to expect forgiveness from a fellow Christian. And every Christian has the right to be, expect to be treated with equality from or by another Christian. So the question here is not about human equality or worth. That's not what we're talking about here in verse 2. Rather, we're talking here about the role within society or workplace or even a household. Based on the various forms of slavery in the ancient world, you see that not every form of slavery was wrong. And so you could have a Christian who was a master. But let's apply it once again to the workplace. What should the Christian attitude be toward the Christian employer? The slave or the employee. You need to have the proper attitude. You need to be submissive to the person in authority. You need to show respect. You need to provide quality work for that master. Even if that master goes to church with you, you may be teaching Sunday school to that master on Sunday morning. But come Monday, she's the boss. He's the boss. Why? You need to be making the Bible credible by the way you live, even among other Christians. Make the scriptures credible by the way you live. Let's take a look at Titus chapter 2. Earlier we read from chapter 3. Look at chapter 2. I recommend chapter 1 as well. Chapter 2, beginning of verse 9, reads this way. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Did you get that? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Saying the same thing here to Titus as he did to, the, uh, to uh, Timothy. In other words, you have a Christian employer person who loves the Lord. But he's just as tough on you as he is on everybody else. Well, I was only 10 minutes late. <laughs> Brother. <laughs> Listen, don't disrespect that person who is over you. Don't disrespect that person because she is over you. Don't lecture the person. Don't despise the person because they are Christians who have authority over you. In the case of slavery, they own you. 
we're talking slavery or employment, my friends, the principle remains the same. Rather, serve your master, serve your boss, all the better, because, look at what the text says, verse 2, because he is your brother in Christ. He is your brother in Christ. Now, unfortunately, many Christians think the opposite. Because you're my brother in Christ, you're going to be more lenient. Now, I was talking to my small engine repair guy, a Christian man. And he was a little hesitant to work with me. And I asked him why. He goes, because you're a Christian. I said, aren't you? He goes, I am. But you see, Christians are the ones who think I, they don't need to pay me. Because we're brothers. <laughs> Christians are the ones who insist and argue with me and don't make their payments. I was wondering what you're going to do. So you know, I whipped out a check even before he worked finished the job. And it's a shame when Christians have their reputation. Don't expect leniency. Don't anticipate favors because you share the faith. Don't expect special treatment because you share your faith with that boss. Don't demand a pardon because you're both in the Lord. Here Paul says the complete opposite. He says otherwise. He says, serve the Christian master, serve that employer better than when you would somebody who is not in Christ. Why? Why? Here's key, verse 2, second half, because you are serving for the benefit of that fellow brother. Why should you serve that person better? Because you are serving for the benefit of somebody who's in your family. Serve him even better. Serve her even better than you would otherwise. You have that added incentive. Like a good parent would sacrifice for a child. Why? Because it's my child. You know, my son just flew in from L.A. And he said, Dad, you wouldn't imagine how much it's going to cost. I said, how much can it be? Sheesh, I ended up paying a lot of money for half. I said, you know what, son? Don't worry about it. I'll pay half. When he told me what half was, I was like, wow. I wasn't expecting that. But you know something? It's my son. I was more than glad to make the sacrifice. I hesitated a little, but I was more than glad to make the sacrifice. Because I love him because he's my son. And when we consider that so-and-so is in the Lord... I am more than willing to do well by you because you are a brother, you are a sister in Christ. Yes, it'll cost me, but you are with me in the family of Christ. You should go to the next level. The Christian servant should serve, look, diligently, eagerly, respectfully, the Christian servant should serve as unto God. And listen, you should serve evangelistically. Why? Because the world is watching. And one more. You should serve eschatologically, meaning keep your eyes in the future. Keep your eyes ahead to see what comes of what you're doing today. The gospel must be proclaimed. And I would insist that it be proclaimed relationally. We live in a series of relationships, good and bad relationships, relationships that are welcomed and some that are unwelcomed. 
healthy and unhealthy relationships, anticipated relationships, and surprise relationships. We live in forced relationships, like when we get married, all of a sudden, family, their family becomes my family. In my case, that was a good thing. In her case, I don't know. <laughs> forced relationships due to marriage, or family line, or maybe even work. And then, of course, we have those relationships we want, like in dating or getting married, right? Willing relationships. Whatever the case, we are in all kinds of relationships. My question for you then is, how are you conveying the gospel in these relationships? Because people are watching, and what you convey through these relationships in these workplaces will tell them how true your gospel is. They will either honor God or revile God and the teachings of God based on how you conduct yourself. Words for all of us to absorb, consider, and practice. Let me pray.